of Job again this evening. Chapter 9. Last time when we looked at chapter 9, we saw that Job wanted his case to be brought before God. He didn't appreciate the way his friends were were handling his situation. They were accusing him of being exceedingly sinful, which they said was obviously the case because he was suffering so much. And uh, unless he'd sinned terribly, surely he wouldn't be in such a predicament. Job maintained, of course, that that was not the case, that he'd not done anything to bring such pain and affliction upon himself, and he wanted to bring his case directly to God, but to him it seemed that God was remaining silent. Besides the fact that God was remaining silent, at times he felt like God was just beating him down more and more as the days went by, And that was happening so much that God must not really care about justice was one of the thoughts that came to him. And then he even entertained the idea that God was actually his enemy. Well, these are devastating things on top of just the outward situation when you have these inward trials and thoughts coming. So, although he wanted to dispute his situation with God, he knew that that really would prove to be fruitless. How can you go in a dispute against God? And especially if you think God's against you as you enter into that situation. So in the midst of such despairing type thoughts and comments, you do see glimmers of hope, places where he gets a little clarity in his thinking, a little refreshing, I think, by the Holy Spirit. And you'll see some amazing statements. But but in the midst of, of the situation that he was in, he would fall back into despair because of the pain and grief and sorrow, it would seem to overwhelm him again, and he would say things that we can see now were improper uh, and actually sinful. So that's, I think we've kind of established that uh, in our times in the past. We want to go on there from there, but I I, uh, thought that would do just a little that little bit of review first. Why don't we pray here before we go on? Father, we ask that you would speak to us tonight from this book of Job. There's so many riches here, and we can just uh, do a very uh, superficial treatment 
in our times together. But we pray that it would be profitable and we'd learn things that would be helpful as we seek to serve you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think we should say from this book of Job that honest questions to God and even doubts are things that God allows for, but things like charging him with injustice definitely crosses over into the line of of sinful attitudes. And Job did do that. He had to repent of that. Uh, At times, Job, in his despair, seemed willing to condemn God in order to justify himself. For such an attitude as that, he was reproved by God. Why don't we just flip back to the end of Job? just to see how it's put there. Job chapter 40, verses 6 through 8. Eventually we'll deal with this whole chapter, but for right now, Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, Now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you and you instruct me. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? See, that's that's what he was doing. He was condemning God in order that that he, Job, might be justified. So God reproves him for such an attitude. So uh, to say it another way, D.A. Carson put it this way. He said, Within certain boundaries, it is far better to be frank about our grief, candid in our despair, and honest in our questions. It's better to do that than to suppress them and wear a pathetic front of puffy piety. That's a little bit hard to say. So, but within certain boundaries. And... Um, at times, Job did not stay within those boundaries. We can ask God questions, but we can't demand answers. And Job did do that some. Uh, And as far as suffering and evil are concerned, one approach which is not acceptable to take is the position that God is not good. If we get that in our thinking, we have crossed over into an area that dishonors God and is definitely sinful. So, um, Job had his moments of clarity and his moments of unbelief. But just in this area of thinking that God might not be good, uh, if God were not good and just, there would be no standard to determine what goodness and justice is all about. And in fact, life would be hopeless. Moreover, to take that position denies truths that God has written on the human heart. You're denying something that God has written on every human heart. 
concerning his existence and attributes and the morality that, that is there. See, Job was, Job was without the scriptures. As far as we know, he was writing before uh, or this event, these events of his life took place before the scriptures were written. Nevertheless, he had things written on his heart as all men do. And he would have to deny those things in order to take that position that God is not good. So what I'd like to do briefly this evening is to show several other places in the book of Job when he calls for his case to be made before and even against God. But also then, I mean, that's the bad side. But I want to show you the good side of Job because he was a blameless man up until the time of this uh, these afflictions that came upon his life, God called him blameless, and, and that's as high a recommendation as you can get, is to have God call you blameless. So uh, we want to look at what his life was like uh, in terms of righteousness. So those two sides of Job we're going to look at this evening. Uh, first, then, his complaint that God needs to uh, basically uh, come before him and justify why, why he's doing what he's doing. Uh, he needs to go to trial concerning the way he has treated this innocent man, Job. So we looked at the first one of those places anyway last we we left off with that last time where in chapter 9 and verse 32 he says for he is not a man as I am that I may answer him that we may go to court together see that's what he was desiring he wants to go to court he wants to go to trial together he said we didn't have a, an umpire or as we said last time a daysman to bring this about uh, but if you skip on down to chapter 10, let's just read the first seven verses there of chapter 10. Job says, I loathe my own life. I will give full vent to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why thou dost contend with me. Is it right for thee indeed to oppress? See, he's calling God, saying, God's oppressing me. Is it right for you to do this, to reject the labor of thy hands, what you've done in my life in the past, and to look favorably on the schemes of the wicked? Hast thou eyes of flesh, or dost thou see as man sees? Are thy days as the days of a mortal, or thy years as man's years, that thou should seek my guilt and search out my sin according to thy knowledge? I am indeed not guilty, yet there is no deliverance from thy hand. He says, you know I'm not guilty, and yet this is what you're doing to me. And so he's, he's uh, really asking for uh, a fair deal, you know, a fair uh, looking at his case. If you turn then to 13 and verse 3. But I would speak to the Almighty. 13.3, but I would speak to the Almighty and desire 
to argue with God. I desire to argue with God. And then he talks about his friends being worthless physicians. Uh, Chapter 23. Sometime you have to read these in the context to get the full uh, meaning, but we're just kind of picking out some sections here. 23 and verse 3. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. I would present my case before him. I would fill my mouth with arguments. I would learn the words which he would answer and perceive what he would say to me. Would he contend with me by the greatness of his power? No, surely he would pay attention to me. There the upright would reason with him, and I would be delivered forever from my judge. It's almost like he's saying, if I could just get to God, he'd see that he's been judging me wrongly. But he wants to present his case before God. And then if you skip down to verse 10, but he knows the way I take. When he has tried me, there's the idea of a trial, when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Um, Verse 11, my foot has held fast to his path. I have kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from the commands of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. So again, he's contending that he's followed God as well as he possibly could, and yet all this was coming upon him. And then if you turn to chapter 31. In a minute here, we're going to read quite a bit of this chapter, but I I just want to go to the section where he's talking about having his case before God and, and actually... Uh, bringing God into a, a trial situation. Verse 35 of chapter 31. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Behold, here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. And the indictment which my adversary has written... Surely I will carry it on my shoulder. I will bind it to myself like a crown. I, will, I would declare to him the number of my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. Now, this is, to me, this is an incredible thing that he's saying here and, and because of the attitude he has. He said, just let, let it all be written down, what I've done, the way I've lived, and any charges against me. Because I've lived the way I should live. And if that's all written down, I'd be glad to just carry that right up into God's presence. In other words, I want this thing to come out into the open and I want God to vindicate me. And uh, so you see this attitude, and it's not a good attitude. Uh... But we have to remember that here was a very righteous man. He was a very righteous man. 
going through very great trials, trials that are almost incomprehensible to us. And he was doing that, and I think this is important to remember, without the comfort and clarity of the scriptures. He didn't have the Bible. You know, it says in, let me just turn to this real quickly, in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, talking about the things that are written for us. For whatever, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, that through perseverance and the encouragement, I think the King James says comfort, of the scriptures, we might have hope. In other words, we, we have a place we can turn to that establishes us and comforts us and helps us in, in the times when we're going through difficulties that Job didn't have. And so we have to recognize that when we analyze this man's life. He was in some way groping around trying to figure out what was going on in his life and what God was doing. Well, those are some of the examples of this attitude of trying to call God into question in terms of having a a trial and bringing these things out. But I want to turn around now and examine the godly lifestyle of this man Job. Now this deals especially in the time before Satan had devastated his life with all this affliction and sorrow. But uh, this to me is, this is really amazing to me, the, the degree of insight into righteousness and godly living that this man had hundreds of years before Christ, hundreds of years before the scriptures were written. Uh, it shows what can be written on a person's heart by the Holy Spirit. Uh, so, chapter 29. We'll, we'll read verses 1 through 18, but I want to break it up a little bit and just tell you, first of all, that verses 1 through 11, chapter 29, Job tells of his former days of happiness and prosperity. And then 12 through 25, he tells of his lifestyle. Uh, and we'll see that he must have been some type of a city official, a governmental leader or a judge, because he talks about taking his seat in the square and at the gate of the city, which was where the decisions, the, the uh, judicial decisions were made at that time. He didn't have a courthouse. He went to the gate of the city. So you see that he was acting in the capacity of some type of an official or judge, a well-known one, in fact, one of the best-known ones, one of the most esteemed ones uh, uh, at that time. So... Uh, We'll read verses 1 through 18 and break it up just a little bit here. 29, verse 1. And Job again took up his discourse and said, Oh, that I, that I were as in months gone by, 
as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone over my head and his light, and in his light I walked through the, through the darkness, as I was in the prime of my days, when the friendship of God was over my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me and my children were around me. So the first thing he mentions about that time is his relationship with God, that he was in communion with God and God was watching over him and protecting him and he was, uh, it talks about his friendship with God. So that's the, you know, that was the main thing, that, he, that was his main loss of all the losses that we talk about of Job. This was the one that he brings up first concerning his past, the, just the, the fellowship and communion with God that he had. But he also, of course, mentions his children that uh, were around him. And then verse 6 talks of his lost prosperity. When my steps were bathed in butter and the rock poured out for me streams of oil. In other words, it was a prosperous time in his life. And then verse 7 through 11 talks about the honor that he had from other people. When I went out to the gate of the city, when I took my seat at the square, in the square, the young men saw me and hid themselves. The old men arose and stood. The princes stopped talking and put their hands over their mouths. The voice of the nobles was hushed, and their tongues stuck to their palate. For when the ear heard, it called me blessed, and when the eye saw it, gave witness to me. In other words, people respected him. He was a highly respected person. When he spoke, others were quiet because they wanted to hear what he had to say. Um, verse uh, 12. Because I delivered the poor who cried for me and the orphan who had no helper. So he was a generous person. He, he uh, was fair. The poor knew that they could receive justice from him. He defended the orphan. Um, 13. Well, we'll read through 17. The blessing of the one ready to perish came upon me. In other words, when a person was going to die, they would give their blessing to Job because they respected him and knew he was a good man. The blessing of the one ready to perish came upon me, and I made the widow's heart sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice, my justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind, feet to the lame. I was the father to the needy, and I investigated the case which I did not know, and I broke the jaws of the wicked and snatched the prey from his teeth. Then I thought, I shall die in my nest. Well, before I say that, just say, see, it seems like he must have been some type, in some type of an official capacity where he talks about, I invested the case which I did not know. I broke the jaws of the wicked. I think he's talking about legally he was standing up for the oppressed, the orphan, the widow. But then he says this in verse 18. Then I thought, I shall die in my nest. I shall multiply my days as sand. In other words, his thought at that time when he was a respected, upright, uh, godly man was that he'd live a long life and he'd just die in his home with his children around him. That's what he thought at the time. Uh, so that gives some feel for this man. He was a man who cared about the needs of others and was one who was well-respected and honored. 
Well, we'll stop there uh, in terms of reading in 29. If you, if you read on to in the 30, you find out just the opposite, how he was being treated now. He was being mocked. He was being ridiculed by young and old alike. Nobody respected him anymore. And even the foolish people of the area and the rabble, the people that he, he um, recognized as just foolish people, now mocked him made fun of him. He went from being the most respected person in the area to the most mocked and ridiculed person in the area. Uh, everybody in society looked down upon him. Uh, chapter 30, verse... We'll just read a couple verses here. Verse 9. And now I have become their taunt. I have even become a byword to them. They abhor me and stand aloof from me. They do not refrain from spitting in my face. I mean, he was a totally rejected person by society at this point. Not just his three friends. We read a lot about them. But it was everybody was treating him this way. Skip over to verse 24. Yet does not one in a heap of ruin stretch out his hand? Or one in distress, therefore, cry out for help? Have I not wept for the one whose life was hard? Was not my soul grieved for the needy? He said, people are treating me just the opposite of the way I treated them when I uh, was not like this. He said, I grieved for the needy. I wept for those whose, whose life was hard. But now here I am, and I'm crying out for help. I'm crying out in my desperation, and there isn't anyone that helps. Well, then chapter 31. And to me, this chapter is an amazing account of how he lived prior to his affliction. <clears throat> and again, I'd say it's amazing partly because of the degree of righteousness which he was aware of and apparently walked in thousands, hundreds, maybe thousands of years before Christ and without the Bible. First of all, consider the sexual purity that he speaks of. We're in chapter 31 now. I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Uh, a desire for sexual purity that made him make a commitment, as he says, not to gaze on a virgin. Uh, I think he's talking about having wrong thoughts and, and not allowing those type of thoughts to come into his mind and rejecting them when they do, taking a stand on what he would look at. I mean, you know, this sounds to me like the New Testament. This sounds to me like the standard that Christ held up. And yet here's Job taking a stand like that. We know that lustful acts are preceded by lustful looks and lustful thoughts. And Job said, I'm not going to allow that in my, li in my life. I'm going to make a covenant with my eyes to keep that from happening. He goes on. We're going to skip a little section. We'll come back to it. He goes on and talks about uh, avoidance then of the outward actions of adultery. Uh, that was the inward part. The outward part uh, in verse 9, 
through 12, if my heart has been enticed by a woman or if I have lurked at my neighbor's doorway, may my wife grind for another and let others kneel down over her. For that would be a lustful crime. Moreover, it would be an iniquity punishable by judges, for it would be fire that consumes to abaddon and would uproot all my increase. He says, not only, I mean, he's saying both the inward and the outward I've avoided in this area of sexual temptation and sexual sin. So there's the first area. Back up a little bit to verse 5. If I have walked with falsehood and my foot has hastened after deceit, let him weigh me with an accurate scales and let God know my integrity. If my step has turned from the way or my heart followed my eyes or if any spot has stuck to my hands, let me sow and another eat and let my crops be uprooted. So he's saying here that he's lived a life of honesty, especially, I think, in his business dealings. He's sought to be honest, no falsehood there. Now down to verse 13. He says, If I've, if I've despised the claim of my male or female slaves when they filed a complaint against me, then this little different view of slavery. In fact, it's a really big different view of slavery because look at what he says here what then could I do when God arises and when he calls me to account what will I answer him did not he who made me in the womb make him do you see what he's saying he's saying I have sought to treat my slave or my servant says slave so I assume that's what we're talking about here I've sought to to treat my slave in a just and equitable way because the same person who made me made him. Did not he who made me in the womb make him and the same one fashion us in the womb? Now, it's taken centuries and centuries for the human race to get that squared away. I mean, this was one of the issues even in slavery in the United States in the 1700s and 1800s was that this person is inferior, therefore I can treat him different than I want to be treated myself. Job says, I know that's not right. The same person that made me made him. And I will not despise that male or female slave. I'll treat them equitably, equitably and justly. So he didn't take advantage of the, the slaves. 16 through 23 then. If I have kept the poor from their desire, or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or have eaten my morsel alone, and the orphan has not shared in it, but from my youth he grew up with me as with a father, and from infancy I guided her. If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing, or that the needy had no covering, if his loins were not thankful to me, and if he was not, if he has not been warmed with fleece from my sheep, if I have lifted up my hand against the orphan, because I saw I had support in the gate, let my shoulder fall from the socket and my arm be broken off at the elbow. What's he saying? He's saying I, I have taken care of the orphan, the needy, the widow, 
the afflicted, the poor. I've taken care of them. It sounds like he apparently had, in verse uh, 18, from, but from my youth he grew up with me as with a father. He's talking about the orphan. He's taken in orphans. Uh, he's saying, I have sought to do right by those that are left behind in society. Verse 24. If I have put my confidence in gold and called fine gold my trust, if I have gloated because my wealth is great and because my hand had secured so much. In other words, he's saying he hasn't been greedy, he hasn't trusted in riches, hasn't gloated because he had more than other people. He hasn't felt like his security was because of his possessions. These are, you see, this is so different than a than a Pharisee talking about their righteousness, because those are they always talk about their externals, the external things they did. Job's talking about heart issues here. And that's a that's a much different thing. So, not greedy, not covetous. 26, if I have looked at the sun when it shone or the moon going, going in splendor and my heart became secretly enticed and my hand threw a kiss from my mouth, that too would have been an iniquity calling for judgment for I would have denied God above. What's he talking about? He's talking about adult, idolatry, uh, worshiping idols. <laughs> I just say it that way so I won't say it wrong twice. He's talking about, you know, looking at the sun and, uh, and the moon and somehow being so enticed that you throw a kiss to the, the sun. In other words, worship of false gods. He said that would have denied God above. So he hasn't been involved in that. 29. This is another amazing one. If I have rejoiced at the extinction of my enemy or exalted when evil befell him, have I? He says, have I rejoiced at that? No, I have not allowed my mouth to sin by asking for his life in a curse. In other words, he's saying he, he has even shown respect to his enemies, and if they you know, fall or are, are killed, he doesn't exalt in that. Verse 31, Have the men of my tent not said... Who can find one who has not been satisfied with his meat? In other words, he shared what, he's ha- what he had. The alien has not lodged outside, for I have opened my doors to the traveler. He's talking about hospitality here, even towards uh, the alien, the stranger. He's welcomed into his home. And then verse 33 and 34. Have I covered my transgression like Adam by hiding my iniquity in my bosom because I feared the great multitude and the contempt of families terrified me and, and kept silent and did not go out of doors? In other words, he's saying, I've, when, I, when I have sinned, I've admitted it. I haven't, uh, it hasn't kept me from telling the truth about myself just because of my reputation. I've admitted my Iniquity. I haven't been like Adam and tried to cover it up. That's the context then, and that's the lifestyle of this man who, who God said 
was blameless. And you can see why God would say such a thing about this man with these type of attributes and uh, living this way. So it was in the context of that type of life that he said, let God come and show where I'm wrong and why I'm suffering. It goes right into that section that we read er earlier about just go up and write, go ahead and write up the indictment because you're not going to find anything. I'd be proud to carry it right into God's presence. He did not fear having these things written down. In fact, he would like it to be done that way so all could see. Now, I little did he realize when he said that 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 is exactly what did happen. God had his life written down. Not only did a few people see it back then, like if he was carrying it around, millions of people have read the account of Job, and it's helped many people. Uh, but like we said last time, his confidence in his righteousness at times became an overconfidence in himself and a self-righteousness before God. Though he never turned from God or cursed God the way Satan said he would, he did say things for which he had to retract and repent in dust and ashes later. And we'll get to that uh, in the future, Lord willing. But right now, uh, let me just close by uh, sharing a few things I think we can draw from what we've looked at tonight. And, uh, and again, these are just a few thoughts from this section. Job said things in the midst of his suffering that he probably would have believed he was incapable of prior to his affliction. He was arguing with, arguing with God, questioning God's goodness and mercy and justice. And what this shows us and what it showed Job is that there was a capacity yet within him to believe evil about God. And I think that we have that capacity also. That's something that we all have the capacity for, and Satan will exploit it in any way he can, any time he can. This is, it's always good to remember that it's just the grace of God that keeps us from going off into any error or evil. And saying things, we just don't know what we would say or what we would do apart from the grace of God. And God, you see, had pulled back a little bit in Job's life, taking the hedge away a little bit, and this is some of what happened. Well, I shouldn't say a little bit, a lot. I mean, God allowed Satan to go after him in an incredible way. We must make a conscious decision by the grace of God to live by faith in the goodness and the justice, faith in the goodness and justice of God no matter what the outward situation. We just have to take that position. I'm going to believe God is good when it doesn't look like it. That's what it looked like to Job. It did not look like God was good. 
The second thing I would say is that we need to be very careful about this area of self-righteousness. Here is the most godly man in the world at the time, and he fell into it. So I would say, if he did, we can. So we need to ask God to show us if we're leaning in that direction in any area of our life. And then thirdly, I would say, though we have more light than Job, it is yet true that the children of light sometimes walk in thick darkness. I got that quote from Charles Spurgeon. He said, the children of light sometimes walk in thick darkness. Spurgeon himself had times of great discouragement and even what he would call depression, although sometimes he called it his fainting fits. It's kind of a strange name, but what he was talking about was being very, so discouraged, so beat down, that he wished that he was not alive. The children of light can sometimes walk in thick darkness. Pain, sleep deprivation, emotional turmoil, bereavement can bring dark shadows into the lives of even godly people. Now, don't go away from here saying, well, Dick said it's all right if I'm depressed, because that's not what I'm saying. I am saying that sometimes we have to walk through dark times. Over and over in in his affliction, Job says that he wished he had not been born or that he wished that he was dead. Can a Christian say such things? Well, yes, they can. Should they say such things? No. Do they say such things sometimes? It's not, I don't think it's ever an overall attitude of life, but there can be periods like that, even in a Christian's life. Here's what Spurgeon said. He said, I have on several occasions felt everything like fear of death taken away from me simply by the process of weariness. For I could not wish to live any longer in such pain as I was then enduring. He said, that's happened several times in my life where I was in such pain, I just wanted to die. True Christians filled with the Holy Spirit still have this treasure in earthen vessels. And God does it that way that he might get more glory because we see who we are without him and how much we need him. And we even can testify of God delivering us from those times. But they are nevertheless sometimes real situations for God's people. So, in conjunction with that, I would say this. If we see a brother or sister in pain or weariness or in sorrow or in bereavement, seek to help them with words of comfort and encouragement and hope in God. One last quote from Spurgeon. He said, I have no doubt that much sorrow might be prevented if words of encouragement were more frequently spoken fitly in more frequently spoken fitly in season. And therefore, 
to withhold them is sin. In other words, you're talking about it being a sin of omission, the thing of not encouraging people. When you see someone that's beat down, weary, distressed, uh, in sorrow, we have an obligation as Christian brothers and sisters to speak words of encouragement fitly and in season, he said. Um, that's what Job didn't get. Not only didn't he get it from the society around him, he didn't even get it from his best friends. He didn't get it from his wife. No encouragement there. It's, it was a sad, sad uh, thing to see how he was treated in his sorrow. So let me just close with this. May it not be like this. May it not be like that in our midst. That there would be no words of encouragement and help and comfort for those in difficulties. Here's, we'll close with this. In chapter 30, verse 24, we read part of this before. Chapter 30, verse 24. Yet does not one in a heap of ruin stretch out his hands or in his distress therefore cry out for help? So Job, Job said, I'm crying out for help. And there just wasn't any. He said, when I was back in, out of this situation, have I not wept for the one whose life was hard? Was not my soul grieved for the needy? He said, that's not the way I treated people, but no one is seeking to encourage and help me. He said, when I expected good, then evil came. When I waited for light, then darkness came. I am seething within and cannot relax. Days of affliction confront me. I go about mourning without comfort. And listen to this. I stand in the assembly and cry out for help. Here's a man crying out for help, and no one helped him. So I say, may it not be that way in our midst.